0: So why not give it a try? Visit denalicanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's denalicanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 487th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who discovered the wonders of harvesting urban trees, weeds, and cacti. We're talking with Peggy Sorensen on foraging edible plants in the Southwest Desert. Peggy is a wild foods enthusiast and forager who enjoys helping people discover the edible plants, trees, and weeds that grow all around us, but are typically not recognized as food. She gives workshops, plant walkabouts around Phoenix, and not only brings in samples of the plants to see, touch, and taste, but she also turns them into tasty treats in order to provide a well-rounded experience. She has become known for her mallow chips— purslane pickles and prickly pear lemonade as well as mesquite nectar and truffles peggy is also a gardener and herbalist and a board member for the arizona herb association welcome to the show today peggy are you ready to rock weeds
1: Yes, I sure am.
0: Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today?
1: I moved to Arizona 33 years ago, and like most people, it looked like just plain de- desert scrub. And I never imagined that there was anything edible at all, not even prickly pear. I didn't know anything. And then I was invited to a wild foods brunch almost 30 years ago. Wow. Given, Yes, given by Linda Runyon. Have you heard of her before?
0: I have not. She
1: lived here for 13 years and she learned many of the plants that grow here in the desert southwest. And this brunch was a full layout of food that was all made from foraged plants. Mm -hmm. And it was all good. It was wonderful. I ate tumbleweed pancakes with prickly pear syrup, among other wonderful foods. And I was so amazed. I could not believe what I was experiencing. And I knew I had to learn more and start finding these plants myself and start incorporating them into my own diet. So I did. That's what I've been doing.
0: Wow. And so Mark Lewis, he's a local forager here. And yes, he's pretty intense with all of this. And I think that he told me one day that there's over 2000 things <laughs> that you can harvest in the desert. What, yes. What Those are of parts
1: thing- of plants. They're, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. Yes. He knows so much more than I do. He's I learn from him all the time. Well
0: that and that's and I learn from you all the time. So what <sighs> kinds of plants are we foraging and eating?
1: Well, there are trees, native and non-native, there are shrubs and weeds and cactus. And so I'll give you some examples. The native trees, there are mesquite and palaverti and ironwood, just to name a few. Some non-native trees that I love to harvest from are carob and olive, our live oaks, you know, the acorns from... Oh, yes. Yes. They they are all across the valley. And pecan, some pecan groves in the valley. And there are some wolfberry, desert hackberry, graythorn berries. And we have our weeds. We have summer weeds like purslane, lamb's quarters tumbleweed and amaranth, and some winter or cold weather weeds like our common mallow, sow thistle, prickly or wild lettuce, and among others, there's chickweed as well. And then our cactus, of course, prickly pear, sororio, barrel cactus fruit, uh, yucca flowers and fruit, and agave heart. Wow. So that's quite a bit. That's (laughs) a lot of, and that's just uh, a sampling.
0: Yeah, exactly. So if somebody wanted to get started wild foraging, first of all, I want to throw a caveat in here. You have to make sure that you know, if you're putting something in your mouth, you have to make sure that you know what it is and that it's not going to hurt you. I heard a story a few years back of somebody doing some wild foraging in Pennsylvania and it killed them. So Um, when you're wild foraging, you have to make sure that you know what you're eating.
1: You cannot emphasize that enough and proper identification and uh, observation and usually have someone with you that absolutely knows what they're doing
0: How does somebody get started
1: Taking a plant walk is is really helpful going to a class finding someone who you can hang out with <laughs> in the garden and you know pull weeds or there's not a a, a lot of ways but we're trying to make it more available yeah. make classes and pant walks more right. available
0: when well, you you spoke this year at our mesquite event we we do a mesquite harvesting and milling event and you mm-hmm. were you were there to assist us with that and high fi- virtual high five to you for that thank you very much and then you came out and participated in the event tell people about mesquite what is that
1: well it is one of the most valuable food trees that we have. It's a bean tree, and it produces pods that you don't eat the bean. You eat, well, if you're eating the actual pod, you're getting the pulp out of the pod and discarding the the bean. And that's what you do at first. You taste the pod and check for its sweetness. Mm-hmm. First, of course, you're identifying the tree properly. And it is such a, a very interesting sweet taste. It's really quite delicious. So you can you know of course grind the, the pods and thankfully this year I was able to bring pods to the hammer mill because grinding them up in a coffee grinder is very time-consuming. And I did that. That's how I actually really got started on teaching mesquite classes Uh because suddenly we didn't have a hammer mill coming up from Tucson anymore. And I didn't want people to think they couldn't eat it at all. So I would demonstrate how to grind a small batch in a coffee grinder or magic bullet. And so I kind of kept that alive as much as I could and of course showed them a drink that I make by boiling the pods. So
0: there's so much that can be done with mesquites. It's it's absolutely wonderful. We the flour that comes out of the flour mill is sweet. So often Heidi and I will use it in a recipe instead of sugar.
1: Right. I don't use sugar. Typically, I use mesquite flour. Uh, And, you know, especially if you pick the sweetest pods, then I I never add sugar. It's really quite delicious without – and much better for you.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So those are the trees. So and Palo Verdes, you can eat the beans and ironwoods, uh-huh. you can eat the beans. But one of the things I'm really interested in talking about is edible weeds. Cause yeah. they're so often overlooked. And you mentioned a couple that grow pretty voraciously here. And one of them is lambs quarters. What do we do with lamb's quarters?
1: I simple. I pick it like any green in the garden and use it. It, It's got a very mild taste. Mm -hmm. It's tender and the leaves are so small. I don't even have to cut them up unless I put them in a weed pesto or add them to a regular pesto.
0: Hold on, hold on, hold on. A weed (laughs) pesto? Tell me about that. That sounds incredible.
1: Well, it is because if you have if, you're, if you just went out in your garden and weeded, and you have a variety of weeds, and you want to know what to do with them, it's easy to just throw them together and add some olive oil and garlic and make blend up a pesto. Wow. You could throw them in soups and casseroles or omelets, and there's almost nothing you can not eat.
0: You mentioned, we'll get to prickly pears here in a minute. You mentioned purslane pickles. Yes, what on earth right is now. a purslane pickle?
1: Purslane is a succulent. Yep. And it's crunchy. And I put it in, as a real easy, quick and easy way of preserving it, I put it in leftover pickle juice. Or I make pickle uh, juice if I don't have any. Right. And I don't, I put it in raw. And it comes out tasting just like the pickle that you would buy from a store. Ah. It stays crunchy forever (laughs) because I have... I've actually found a jar that was like two years old, and it was still good. It was crunchy. It wasn't moldy. <laughs>
0: wow. Well, so the the one thing about purslane that uh, that I have trouble getting past is it's very. They call it the term is mucilagenic. It's very right. slimy. So I I made a green drink here a couple of years ago, and I added way too much purslane to it, and it I just couldn't drink it. It had to go to the worms. <laughs> because it was too slimy. When you pickle them like that, does it help with the sliminess? It does.
1: Uh, I don't notice any sliminess at all when when I pickle them. Uh-huh. But I do know what you mean. Uh, putting too much in a green drink isn't good. <laughs> in fact, eating too much purslane is not good for you, too much at one time. Um, I know someone that ate a whole bag of purslane, and she told me later that she had wild and trippy dreams that night. Ooh. And she attributed it to the purslane. I have not heard that from anyone else before, but that was a large amount of purslane, yeah. so wow. don't eat too much
0: and, yeah exactly well and you know it's wise not to eat overindulge in anything even chocolate well exactly all right, maybe not chocolate but <laughs> so weeds so we talked about the trees we talked about the weeds let's talk about cactus and prickly pears i was actually at a yoga class last night it's, we're recording this in the middle of August, and I was at a yoga class last night. And looking out at the win, out the window, I saw three large prickly pear cactuses that had. Well, I'm going to guess a hundred pounds of prickly pears each on them. And, you know, I started dreaming about prickly pear mm-hmm. and syrup and jam and lemonade. Tell us about the prickly pears because right now they're amazingly abundant.
1: Yes, they are. And, well, you have to be very careful in harvesting them. Yes, you don't know, touch you... them. <laughs> right. There are a lot of precautions, you know, just being cautious when you're around the plant, but using barbecue tongs makes it much easier. Oh, yes. Dropping them into shallow boxes is very helpful or a bucket. You bring them home and it's best to keep them outside when you wash them. If you bring them inside, you will probably find glockids here and there and it can be irritating. And glockids are like Real tiny hairs, and once you get yeah. them on you, you might not see them, but... They're not um, hairs.
0: They're spines. They're <laughs> pricklies. They're, you don't want to get them on you.
1: Right. So washing them off, well, there are different ways of get, getting them off.
0: What is your favorite way to get them, get them handled?
1: I put them in a large, like a dish pan, and spray them with water, with a water hose. And swish them back and forth. But actually, I I do initially, I I will take like a desert broom, which is a plant often found growing around prickly pears, and I'll brush them off initially, and then I'll pick them off. And then sometimes I'll roll them around in the sandy soil or the rocky soil, Hmm. and get them off. So I try to, every stage of harvesting, I'm conscious of removing them. And then I put them in, if I put them in shallow boxes, then I'll roll them back and forth in the box. And that helps to knock them off as well. You could put them in like a a screen and that helps as well. But see the box you can throw away. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So... Then I'll put it into a tub with the water and spray them and get more of them off.
0: I've actually been picking (laughs) prickly pears for over 40 years. When I was a kid, we used to drive up to Payson in the summer times. And on the way back, we would stop and get big buckets of them. And mom would bring them home and make prickly pear jam and jellies and syrup and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things that I discovered along the way is I definitely use gloves when I'm harvesting and tongs. So I never touch the prickly pear itself. But what I do is I bring them home. I rinse them. I have an outdoor sink. I rinse them off in the outdoor sink. And then I put them in a gallon jar. I just drop them one by one into a gallon jar until it's full. And then I take a potato masher and I crush them in the gallon jar. So it Uh kind of breaches each fruit. And then I keep doing that until the gallon jar is 85% full. And then I stick a lid on it and I stick it in the freezer
1: Uh
0: and I freeze it. And so that does a couple of things for us. First of all, what it does is by crushing the fruit, it starts breaking the cells to let the juice out. But then when you freeze it, it finishes the job. So that right. when you unfreeze it, it's the liquid just flows out for the most part. But the other really cool thing is, is that the glockids, those are the spiny things that you don't want to get on you. The glockids right. just disappear in the freezing process.
1: It's like magic, right? It really
0: is. <laughs> so that just makes it super you, simple.
1: You probably know this, but I took a class that was my first prickly pear class, uh-huh. and that's how I processed prickly pears for years. Cool. <laughs> so I, I love that method, mm-hmm. but I've also, I acquired a juicer and I've, I juiced them as well. But that is the easiest way to, to juice prickly pears. And then you strain them and the the glock is they are gone they are gone I'm not sure how it happens but they disappear
0: yeah well and what I do with a gallon jar then is I just bring it in and I turn it upside down into a strainer with a bowl underneath it and I let it sit there for 12 hours as it defrosts you know all the juice runs out and then we have this nice amazing taste and an amazing color tell me tell us about the color of prickly pears
1: well it's a beautiful magenta and it's just brilliant it's it makes anything you add it to look wonderful, except mesquite nectar. You don't want to combine oh, it with go. that. Okay. It will just look muddy. There you go.
0: There <laughs>
1: but you go. adding it to lemonade or, or just water, it just is cheerful.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's wonderful. So you teach classes. How would you get started teaching classes?
1: Well, I started getting phone calls all of a sudden. Out of the blue, libraries and organizations and farmer's markets started calling me. So apparently the word got around that I knew something.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and what kind of classes are you teaching?
1: Well, of course, the mesquite, like we mentioned, prickly pear and weeds, edible and medicinal weeds as well. Mm -hmm. Landscape plants, edible trees. So whatever people ask, even last year I taught infusing herbs and in honey at the Honey, the honey Bee Festival. Festival. Wow. Yeah, so usually I'll do whatever I'm asked.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's what, you know, that's what we do, right? Right. So you've been Winter. teaching, you've been teaching now for a while. Has there been a, an instant where somebody got something, had an aha moment that that once they got it, told you, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing?
1: Yes, absolutely. I Every time I teach a mesquite class, I pass out the pods, a piece of pod to everyone. And the look on their face, I can always tell. I tell them to put the pod in their mouth and just let it Set for a few moments, or or just suck on the end of it, yep. and taste it. And I can always tell when they this light bulb goes off. Like, wow, this is sweet. This tastes good. And they'll say, "I never knew. I never t- knew it tasted so good." Right. But what really the most what gives really gives me chills is when someone says, "I used to eat this as a kid." Yes. And then life happens and, you know, they stop. But then when they rediscover the mesquite pods, it really is something special.
0: Fun. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. So... I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it.
1: Well, I learned a big lesson when I failed to follow my own foraging rules. Uh-oh. And we, we talked about it before. It's positively identifying a plant before you taste it. Mm-hmm. So I, I tried a plant. That I was not familiar with, and my throat started burning, and it did scare me. And I happened to know that within a few feet of where I was standing, there was mallow growing, the common mallow right it's often called called cheese wheel or cheeseweed. And I went over, I ate a couple of leaves, and it soothed my throat. And the burning went away, and I was so thankful. I I was like, I learned my lesson. I'll never do that again.
0: Do you know what the plant was?
1: No, I don't.
0: Well, it turned out okay. That's good. You knew what to do.
1: Right. And thankfully, we should never be careless with our health and take chances like that.
0: Exactly. And what do you consider your biggest success?
1: Well, like... I said I, I didn't set out to teach classes. People started contacting me and I've I'm not really a teacher by trade at all. So I was reluctant and thankfully I pushed through it and I did it anyway. But the the real success that I felt was when people would ask me back to do mm. another class, yes. I'm like, okay, that kept me going. Yeah. And that, that is success when other people learn and they want to learn more.
0: Yeah. When you get that input from people that they give you a high five and want more. Yay. Right. So what drives you?
1: You know, I love wild foods. I love discovering and teaching other people to discover the foods that are already growing all around them. You know, I am a gardener. I love gardening, but there are so many advantages to the plants that are already growing or, the, for example, the weeds that pop up in your garden or in your yard. And, you know, why tear out something that is perfectly good and mm-hmm. go buy something that is not necessarily as good right. for you. you know, so, of course, it, it's free food and it eliminates waste. For example, when you harvest mesquite pods from the tree, you're preventing a mess on the ground that you have to later rake up and throw away. There are... Actually, many reasons to learn these plants. And one of them, that, that one reason it really drives me is you know, our economy is, it really is failing, unfortunately. It's propped up, and there are no guarantees that food from around the country and
0: around the world, you know, around
1: the world yeah. right, will be delivered. So, what would happen if, if the grocery stores closed? What would you eat? And that I want people to know. I, I seriously, it's easier to teach them how to harvest than it is to harvest it yourself and feed them. So, yeah,
0: exactly create farmers,
1: exactly. Yeah, awesome. that's what you do.
0: <laughs> hey, if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why?
1: Well, my first foraging book was Sonoran Desert Food Plants. Edible Uses for the Desert's Wild Bounty, the second edition by Charles W. Kane. And this booklet, it's small, but it covers 58 wild Sonoran edible plants, as well as a list of look-alike plants and toxicity issues. So it gives a good start for people who... Want to start to learn what is right here on the desert floor
0: perfect what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
1: I would say to start learning right now, and if you can take a class or go on a plant walk, do it don't put it off i I think that there's actually an urgency that you know to to start learning, but there's one way that everyone can start right now, even if you don't have a class to go to or a plant walk, and that is to designate a portion of your backyard if you have one. If you don't, then get some pots with some soil Mm -hmm. and just water that area. If it's not weeds like um, disturbed soil, so it's best to, to rake it up, disturb the soil, And then water it and find out what pops up.
0: (laughs) Nice experiment.
1: Yes. And, you know, if you put a little edging or some rocks around it, make sure that, you know, it doesn't get mowed or pulled. You know, put a little sign and just make it like a happy little experiment. And find out. Or if you have existing weeds right now, take a picture, post it on Facebook, or you know, ask a neighbor, go take it to a nursery and find out what it is, and then start reading about it. Start watching videos. And so it's an accumulation of information. That will be helpful.
0: Yeah, perfect. We've been talking about desert edibles because we live in the desert here, but everybody has if they live somewhere, they have something they can go out and forage, I would guess, right?
1: Absolutely.
0: So uh, weeds
1: pop up everywhere. Yeah,
0: exactly. So <laughs> just, you know, if you're if you're in Minnesota or Seattle or Timbuktu, Iowa, you know, go and check with your friends and neighbors and just dig in and see if there's something going on forage-wise in your area. Right. Great idea. And I want to thank you for being on the show today, Peggy.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. This has been fun.
0: How can our listeners get a hold of you? Definitely been fun.
1: Yes. Well, typically I have been most visible on Facebook. So people can friend me at my name, Peggy Sue Sorensen. That's SEN, and I have a Facebook group called The Desert Kitchen. So I will add people to that group who are interested in following and knowing about my classes, but not only what I do, but also classes, whether they're gardening or foraging or other events. I, I post them. It's like a community page, Perfect. so people can find out a lot of information in that group, especially if you're in Arizona. It's yeah. mainly for this area, but I also have a blog that I have a calendar of my events only. Mm-hmm. At it is the the Desert Kitchen dot blogspot.com and, or people can email me at az at gmail.com and I will say I am starting to post on Twitter and Instagram so that should be a little more know. active in, in the near future there you
0: go you can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash desert kitchen